For July 19th, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 681. I'm glad that I saw the Marvel property that had an alligator with a funny hat. Hey, it's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. You can think of us like uh, like a long lost, a long lost family of uh, of secret agents coming together to uh, to really do a uh, to do a, the Americans, um, which appa- <laughs> apparently was happening ten years after that show was supposed to. Uh, supposed to be taking place, or uh, or I suppose you could think of us as as really the same person, <laughs> but uh, on multiple different timelines, multiple different quantum realities coming together in the multiverse of podcasting to uh, talk about the things that we enjoy and to talk about them together. I'm Matt Rather. I am joined by alternate reality version of me, Peter Fenzel. Hello, hello, Matt. And uh, bearded altered, alter, alter, alternate reality version of me, Jordan Stokes. Hi, Jordan. Hi, it's great to be here. It took it took so long, though. Though actually, I, in point of fact, I I seem to understand that we are all bearded. I grew a COVID beard, um, and and Pete, I I seem to recall that you're sporting some facial hair at the moment. Yeah. Oh yeah, I grew a beard before COVID, but I've also gone. I've just done the whole grow it long, shear it off, grow it long, shear it off since quarantine started so got a cheap style uh, yeah 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 you know just make sure you get those uh, and then i just stack the fleeces and then i look to spin them into yarn which i could then use to riddle someone to steal their baby or something like that i'm not sure oh, so how it works that's wonderful yeah rumple rumple stillskin yeah spell fenzel backwards three times <laughs> and and then pete's beard appears um, ah! So, uh, hey, we, uh, we called our shot before, which is always a mistake. Um, we, uh, said that we were going to talk about, about Black Widow. Um, instead, we want to do an entire podcast on Space Jet. No, it's not. not. (laughs) Everybody get up. No, everybody sit back down. (laughs) Everybody's, everybody sit back down. Though, let me tell you, going to see Black Widow today, I did have to get up and sit back down because a fire alarm went off. Uh, oh. in, at, at the climactic moment, spoiler alert for Space Jam, uh, Natasha is, is, for, um, about to dunk. No, she's, uh, she's, uh, flying through the air as the air fortress is, is blowing up and she's jumped off. She's pulled a, uh, point break and jumped off without a parachute. And, uh, then just the, um, the picture stopped and the sound stopped. And for like two or three seconds, everyone had this, this thing like, oh, this, uh, audible reaction in the auditorium. Um, that was, uh, just disgust that this had happened. And I thought, oh man, the film broke because I was used to that happening. And yeah. then I thought, then I thought, nope, nope, the film didn't broke, broke. There's no film to broke. Uh, and then the, uh, the alarm went on and went outside. And then we, uh, then we sat down and sat down again, continued the film. And let me tell you, the momentum, right? The momentum was not, it was not, uh, really possible to, to recover it, you know, it, to start at such a high pitch, pitch of action, having, you know, walked out into the blinding sunlight, 
um, hung around for 15 minutes while I guess whatever they check the things they check and clear the things that they clear. And then, uh, you go back in and suddenly without warning, the, the film starts from the exact frame that it had, uh, that it had stopped on. Now, Pete, I, I'm given to understand that you have a, a, uh, unique experience as far as fire alarms during, uh, during feature films. Well, those who've been listening to the podcast would probably remember it because it was from the 2016 comedy heavy hitter. I mean, really, this is a movie. I hesitate to use the word criterion collection or the word standard, golden standard, maybe the gold standard. So all of us know, right, that at some point Jordan Peele made the leap from being just another sketch comic to being a film treasure. Um, and we all know that this happened with the 2016 movie Keanu, wherein there is a cat uh, instead of a dog that has been separated from organized crime. Uh, and it's it's a fish out of water comedy. We podcasted about it, I think. We did, uh, I think. Yeah. Um, Keanu was shown in 2016 at the Showcase Cinemas Wooburg, which is also where I went to go see uh, F9. Oh. Uh, so I had returned there. Um, they have given me I had I had multiple free tickets to burn through after my experience watching Keanu, uh, pun intended. But yes, the popcorn machine set fire to things no fewer than three times <laughs> during my showing of Keanu and the, the entire the entire complex, not just the one stage, but the entire theater complex was evacuated three different times. We experienced a rotating kind of sunrise and sunset of different children's birthday parties uh, during this like Sunday afternoon showing of Keanu <laughs> that we were at um, the last one with less than 10 minutes to go in the movie. Uh, in fact, I would even venture to say less than five minutes to go in the movie, <laughs> but we, we went back and we watched it end. And I would say that this made the experience more memorable. I think. Um, why would they plug it in again? The pop people, because it's a popcorn business that happens to show movies, Matt. <laughs> Fair enough. It's like that's where the margin is, right? Uh, and, and how could they possibly screw it up three times in a row? Um, I just, I did like the sense of camaraderie I got when the people who were on out in the parking lot during the third evacuation acknowledged to each other this sort of sort of naivety and insufficient cred of all the people that like had just arrived for their first evacuation of the day and hadn't experienced all three. Of them. <laughs> we, maybe, we had a sort of, we had a sort of bond, right? Those maybe of us maybe those were, there were subsequent evacuations that you, you know, after That's you true. left the, after you left the complex, having, having been keanu Yes, uh, they still tell our story. I do recommend the Showcase Cinemas were burned. It's very nice. But at one point, they did have some problems with the popcorn machine. Jordan, this was about five years ago. Has it ever <laughs> has it ever happened to you, Jordan, that, uh, that a film has been interrupted for, for uh, under mysterious circumstances? Uh, there was one time that I went in uh, to see a movie with, I think, with my whole family. I was quite young. And, like, the opening credits started not even the opening credits but like the they turned on the projector and like the the green this preview is rated for all audiences thing appeared and then the entire theater lost power and just sort of like and the lights were off you know <laughs> eventually we walked out to the lobby and they're like yeah we're real sorry uh and we didn't see a movie that day so you know oh, uh, wow. i don't even remember what it was supposed to be i didn't see it but 
Oh man, that's that's my uh, my story. I would feel you, like the the fire alarm thing is more fun. Would you say that the the preview you saw was rated for all audiences, or was it perhaps too scary for your young <laughs> too self? hot for the cinema? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. It's a it's a preview for the loss of power that awaits all of us. You know, <laughs> sooner or later. Oh, that's dark. Yeah. You you can't actually show a preview for Terminator Two through a standard extension cord. It'll just <laughs> it'll set the theater on fire. You, you uh, really did, you in- <laughs> did you intend to say, "Oh, that's dark"? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I, it's dark. It is dark. Uh, that, is, that is true. It's true. Because there's because there's no power. I had a I had some additional misadventures at the theater, and the fact that I want to talk about all these things really should should tell you. <laughs> Kind of what I think about Black Widow. Um, I, uh, someone, I, I was, I sat down in my seat, the seat on my ticket, and someone came and they had that, that ticket as well. And I thought, since the advent of computers, surely we don't do this anymore in our, uh, in our recliner, uh, era of selecting your own recliner to, you know, to watch a film in. And I, you know, it's like we were holding our phones up at each other, like, uh, you know, like these were some, you know, some sort of warrant for our ocu- occupying the the seat. And, um, you know, so I moved over a couple seats because it was not a, you know, it was a matinee. It was not a, a full theater. <laughs> but then I was in someone else's seat. They came and I was in, uh, uh, I, I had picked, uh, picked their seat. So that's, uh, that was, so anyway, so this, uh, this dispute over who was the, the rightful, um, occupier of row C, seat five in auditorium two. Of the uh, the AMC dine in Marina del Rey, um, this this uh, was really the most dramatic thing that happened during the entire. Well, I guess a fire alarm went off, but during the during the uh, the um, the whole uh, the whole Black Widow thing. And Pete, did you did you watch Black Widow on uh, on Disney Premier Access, or did you make it out to a movie theater for it? No, I watched it on Disney Premier Access on my on my plasma screen with the bad sound that I've talked about previously. And this was another movie that was pretty bad for the plasma screen with the bad sound. Um, the the Harvey Weinstein villain. Uh, it was hard to hear anything he was saying, and a lot of the conversations were a little tough to deal with. But uh, you need the thrum. You need the like the yeah. rattle, rattling thrum of the when he talks. You, or I guess he does it with a when he does it with a Russian accent. Then Harvey talks. He, you know, says, "Ah, I'm a I'm a big rumbly cello vec. Yeah. Now, <laughs> if you if you haven't seen Black Widow, first of all, we're not going to go too deep into it. Second of all, we're also going to talk about the Loki show today. So hang in there. All right. But we do want to get a couple things out about Black Widow. A because we said we would talk about it. B because it does feel like it's important. I think, and not necessarily as an as as art, but as an art object, right? As sort of the first big superhero movie that isn't Fast F9 <laughs> that like came out into theaters as this sort of threshold movie between streaming and, and theatrics, right? Um, and as the long-awaited Scarlett Johansson solo movie in which she shares the screen with like a bunch of other people, uh, it didn't feel very solo. But anyway, I don't know. Which is her um, spy, her spy movie, which contains exactly zero spying. So oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So like, okay, dig, dig it. I'll, I'll stop. Uh, I'll stop doing ridiculous pattern and jump in. Like we had this conversation. I feel like the culture had this conversation during during that championship season where 
we were talking about, hey, is is theat- are theatrical motion pictures ever going to come back in any form? You know, yeah. like, is the business going to be um, just a shell of its former self? Is it going to become like vinyl, you know, in a sense where maybe there are like artistic reasons and a, and a you know, small market for, though I guess vinyl outsells CDs these days, but still, you know, nothing compared to streaming, I suppose. Um, the, uh, the, that like, it will be this, you know, sort of artisan medium and, and, you know, people, people will care about it in, in small, like 150 seat art house theaters in, in big cities, but otherwise it's going away. And, you know, what we've had like over, over the last three weeks, or maybe actually, maybe it's compressing it to say the last three weeks, but we've had three, um, giant movies. Uh, a, a Quiet Place Two did really well. F Nine d- did really well, and uh, and Black Widow did really well. Like, and, and to and to the point where like it was a synergy. It was like a hybrid thing that um, uh, where they reported they broke out the numbers separately for what it made on streaming. Versus what it made in the the theatrical box office, you know, which is to say if either of those numbers had underperformed, they would have just rolled it into one, uh, rolled it into one figure. Right. And and declared victory. But the idea that, you know, the idea that you can split it up and still, you know, count still count it as a victory is is interesting. But Pete, what you're saying is is uh interesting that like you you the conditions of exhibition were not um the conditions of exhibition were not ideal for black widow in in your house just because you don't have the sound system that can deal deal with the the the, um you know i don't know the crashing and the the barrage of of uh, sensory overload that, that they give you now in in movie theaters they solve that by just turning everything way 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 up so that the soft parts sound normal and the um the loud parts sound ear shatteringly uh ear shatteringly terrible but like i guess it wasn't conceived for both the the small and the the big screen but i don't know is there is there anything to to kind of analyzing it as a small screen plus big screen phenomenon because i think i had a better experience than you did and probably enjoyed the movie a little more as a result yeah i think the thing that I noticed when I went to go see F9 again was that as the, you do, as you do. Oh, sorry. When I went to go see F9, the thing that I noticed again, uh, because we talked about it previously, was being in the theater, the the place, the relationship with the eye is different, right? Because your eye can get directed into different places in the screen when the sort of screen is bigger than your head, Right. Like there's the idea of like the screen being a lot, the, the screen be smaller than your head. You're sort of looking into it. And then when the screen is much, much, much bigger than your head, your whole face has to turn to like look at different things. Right. And and when you have these really super busy movies with a lot of stuff happening on screen at the same time, I, I wonder during the collapse of the of the wreckage scene in Black Widow, whether I would have liked it more in the theater because there would have been little things to look at and little things to to see. Um I, I mean, I think that it's a, it's a for small screen and big screen, it's a testament to the subscription model effectively that Marvel charges all of us for watching their stuff. Right. 
which is not all levied in one bill, but which is sort of amortized across various different services. But this notion that there that we have a relationship with these stories and we go see the multiple stories, not necessarily because of who's in it, but because we want to kind of keep watching this stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that uh, in terms of watching it on a TV, I liked watching it on TV. I probably would have liked it less watching it on a phone just <laughs> just as a guess. But uh, but, yeah, you know, it's there's certain movies that I, I'm just fine with watching on my TV. My TV is pretty big and it's pretty nice. But, um, you know, I got to do something about the sound. I don't know. Jordan, do you, have you I know you didn't see Black Widow, but have you watched a theatrical movie at home, like one of the first run theatrical movies that they've done as a special event? I forget if you were on one of our podcasts about one of them, like if you were on the Bill and Ted uh, episode or something like that, um, or you did Mulan or something along those lines. Um, you know, I know that we saw one of them and I can't remember which one it was that we paid for. And we're like, well, that when you factor in the popcorn, that's about what we would have spent at the theater anyway. Yeah. I did see uh, recently the movie that I saw that like came out in theaters and also on streaming um, was Luca. And there, I mean, that was uh, that was a lot of fun and great. But there were aspects of it that I think would have been even better on an actual big screen. And I, I certainly, the thing that I miss, the, the thing that the big screen does for me is that it takes away the permission to look down at my phone or be distracted mm. by like something that my cat is doing elsewhere in the room or just have like the light, the light pollution from not being in a completely darkened house. So like it's uh, I, I agree with what you say about the fact that like the big screen makes you makes your eyes behave differently. And that's a really interesting point. But I feel like if I had a full scale movie theater in my house that I could go into even though my eye would be behaving in in that theatrical way, like myself would not be because I would still want to like get up and get some chicken nuggets in the middle of it. And I would have the permission to do that when I haven't like gone into this quasi sacralized space that movie theaters sometimes are not all movie theaters. You know, there, there's different, different kinds of movie theaters, different kinds of movie going practices, but that's the thing that I really miss. And I haven't, uh, I haven't left the house to do it yet. I'm still too paranoid about COVID, but I really do miss it a lot. Sometime soon, man, sometime soon. It is nice. To, it is weird. It is weird to be back in a movie theater, but it was. It's nice. I think um, they are. They, I, I echo something Mark Lee said earlier about uh, about it, which is that you know related to your experience watching uh, watching all these films, Pete, that you've watched um, on your uh, on your plasma screen. They're so loud. The, the, yeah. the movies in movie theaters are so loud. And like, have I have I gotten old, guys? Is that is that what has has happened to to you know bring me to this pass where i'm like turn turn down the volume on the movie i don't wanna don't wanna have shattered my eardrums listening to it i don't i don't know who i was there or when i became that person but uh yeah you know, there 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 am i there you know there i right. go um uh -huh. the, to dig into Black Widow for just a second. I just want to say the fire yeah. the fire alarm was was quieter than the the action that was on the screen. Um <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, uh, dig dig into to Black Widow Black Widow and the constant visual motif of the open window uh, center frame behind the characters yawning open with possibility. Yes. <laughs> That is a that is a great point. Uh, I, 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 was, I was trying to come up with what. So I think one of the biggest issues with watching Black Widow 
is time, right? And we'll get more into time and its malleability when we talk about Loki. But that Black Widow is a movie that was that is takes place before Infinity War, and is uh, it also is sort of a memory movie that doesn't really have a framing device. It also feels like it is ripped from the headlines of like 2014 because it's about the trafficking of women. And it has a real sort of Save Our Girls vibe. If you remember when Save Our Girls was a big kind of catchphrase and, and movement, right? Um, this I, this that the movie takes it as a foregone conclusion that everybody is aware and concerned with large scale human trafficking of women as like one of the things that's front of mind, right? Uh, in the current moment, which doesn't really feel current. Uh, not that that is, of course, not the case, but just that it isn't the the, the thing that people are paying attention to now. Uh, now, and that doesn't mean that the movie was made in 2014 because it wasn't, um, but it feels dated. Uh, and, and because of it being dated. So accurate, the, accurately dated, right? Given yeah, yeah, when yeah, it's yeah, supposed yeah. to take place, it, it I just, suppose. Is, yeah. But, but I think part of it is that because it took so long to make and you and I think you had mentioned this, that it's very likely the action sequences were conceived before the script was written. And because you need to come up with what are the big action temple action sequences that are going to make people want to see this movie, it did. It lacked a Justin Lin style, you know, governing uh, geometric orienting principle, right? Um, and that you can go through the character driven scenes, and those scenes have kind of plot, and and they have some measure of you know connectedness, and there's some point where there's some energy that gets built up. But I didn't feel like they intersected much with the action sequences. Um, and so it's hard to come up with a Downton Abbey moment that covers the whole movie. And in particular, what I would suggest is that this is a movie where on the, on a sort of surface level reading, I think it's aiming to be a sort of John Woo-ish movie in the sense that it's about mirrors, right? It's supposed to be one of those many, many, yeah, many uh, also mirrors. birds. I mean, did you did you clock the birds because there were a lot of them? <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of birds? I actually didn't clock them. No, birds. there were there were and this is actually this is one of those things that that you got on a on a big screen that you you wouldn't have gotten because the birds are so big and it it like it creates a motion that draws the eye and the act of drawing the eye kind of like sort of sort of moves your head. Um, but yeah, the, the, there were some like slow motion birds. I think when they go to Budapest, maybe Budapest, mm -hmm. Budapest, yeah. when they go to, it's, uh, it's pronounced Edinburgh. <laughs> oh, got it. When they, uh, when they go to Edinburgh, they, um, they have, uh, you know, they're walking into the thing and some like some pigeons go. And I, I thought it was like maybe just overcranked a little. It was slightly slow mo. Uh, and I thought, yeah. is this, is this John Woo? But yes, it is. It is. Uh, uh we're not so different, you and I. Pete, Benson. yeah, because because it's a because there's a bunch of pairs, right? There's you're, the movie's ostensible purpose in the MCU is to introduce the younger, more interested in doing Black Widow, Black Widow, because Scarlett Johansson is moving on with her life, right? And doesn't want to do this anymore, which is understandable, right? Um, and so they have her younger sister now, who's going to be the new Black Widow, right? Sure. Um, it's, Jordan, I'm sorry if we're spoiling some of this for you. This is like apparent in the first 15 minutes of the movie. I got um, the feeling from the trailer, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. <laughs> and like that's the ostensible occasion of what you're doing. And so there's this idea of like she's a mirror of me, but then there's all these women who are part of the widow organization, and it introduces the idea that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of these widows all over the world, and that they're all kind of similar to each other, and then the main action villain is the taskmaster but a very very boiled down version of the taskmaster which is like a villain whose power comes from being able to imitate the fighting techniques of heroes 
Um, and they have one or two shots, just this sort of whiff of this concept where like she's supposed she's able to fight like T'Challa. She's able to fight like Steve Rogers. She shoots an arrow like Hawkeye. But like, come on. Right. Being able to shoot an arrow like Hawkeye is not like a marketable skill. Right. That is an obstacle for Hawkeye to overcome, not something that he has to, like, be proud of. Right. Yeah, just ask, ask Katniss Everdeen. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, but there's this idea that there's and the Downton Abbey moment for it, I think, is that it centers around. And Jordan, you're going to love this if you actually see the movie. The David Harbour as the Red Guardian, this sort of cut rate. So the other Soviet super soldier, not the winter soldier, apparently, who was also at one point operating out of the Soviet Union uh, at the same time, yet they never talk about each other. But the sort of like, you know, well, America has it, so we need to have it, too. Right. Like the sort of Russian blue jeans uh, super soldier who is like looks very out of shape and, and is very sort of uh, very uh, braggadocious about his adventures fighting Captain America, which like because he he tells the stories in prison about when he fought Captain America like in the seventies or eighties, right? Like when was this supposed to happen? And someone comments like Captain America was frozen in ice. And he's like, no, I fought Captain America. Um, and I think that, that if that's the Downton Abbey moment, what this movie then becomes about is our histories are what differentiate us from the, but also unite us. Right. It's like there are people you have things in common with. There are people that you have everything in common with, but one thing. And that makes you different, like Goku and Vegeta. Right. Like like you have mirror people. It's like, oh, is this is this person here to supplant me? Is my identity going to get subsumed into them? What's the difference between good and evil if we're all just spies? Right. There's this very sort of, you know, talked about but not really exemplified notion that this is a movie about kind of blurry identity. And I think the core idea is that the history of what you've gone through is both what makes you similar to somebody else and also makes you different from somebody else. And that these this is the sort of core ambiguity. And so that's why it matters that the taskmaster is who she is, um, which I'm not even going to bother spoiling because it's not worth it. Um, <laughs> as in the sense of like, you know, Jordan hasn't seen the movie. I'm not going to reveal who the taskmaster is. Yeah. Um, There's something like not having seen the movie. This actually seems really fascinating. The I'm, I'm kind of sad to learn that the movie was not all that great because there's something very interesting about the idea that the movie is built around the action sequences first. Like that's really what you're going. That's what it, to that's what it feels like. Yeah. 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 And then yet the person that you're seeing in those action sequences mostly is not Scarlett Johansson, right? It's her stunt double or it's a CGI model of her. And the idea that the Taskmaster is someone who can act like Chadwick Boseman is is fighting, but it's not actually Chadwick Boseman, right? Like, yeah. th there's something kind of thematically rich about that. And the notion that, like, there are all of these interchangeable Black Widow people who you can sort of slot in one after another um, is is also kind of resonant with this idea that, like, well, what do, you, what do you go see a Scarlett Johansson movie for in the first place if you're not actually seeing her in the fight scenes? Like, what makes somebody an action star is their ability to, like— 
hold a pose and have their face look really interesting when photographed from a particular angle or something like that. And then the CGI thing takes over from there and they're out of the picture. Like that all, that all feels really fascinating. So it's kind of a shame uh, from your description that they didn't manage to make a movie out of it. <laughs> I don't know, Matt, what do you think? Going, you going with the Jackie Chan, uh, the Jackie Chan truism that like, if you see the camera shaking a lot, the actor doesn't know how to fight. Um, and if the camera is still as it is in all of Jackie Chan's movies, uh, and you are just like witnessing the stunts being done without a lot of like jiggle, 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 uh, to, you know, to, to cover the fact that the hits aren't real, um, or at least are not on target or, you know, aren't happening in some way. Like, uh, then, uh, by, by that measure, this was 100% practical and done by Scarlett Johansson <laughs> on, on set because it was so so jiggly it was like very difficult to follow for me like not the way that you would have expected if this movie were to be really bad (laughs) there we go which it wasn't it wasn't really bad um no it was not uh you know the the camera was just was just shaking a lot one of the one of those things it's almost as though the camera gets kicked when a character gets kicked because it like jerks back a little bit yeah it's like the foreign identity style yeah um Though I don't know those those stunt performers in in Born Identity the like the stunt actors who do the the close quarters fights with Matt Damon are pretty good I think maybe it's just Matt Damon um, who needs I mean the... it's not as good as Born Identity but it's but just yeah like... it, it had it had a lot of handheld in it another thing that I thought that you would uh, that that maybe would not register quite as strongly uh, as it did. It's not quite as as lunch losing, you know, to see to see a lot of handheld care, a lot of very busy like running around um, handheld uh, handheld camera work. But yeah, it it is. I mean, the the movies are, and you know, for this go reference the um to any number of like marvel movie explainer videos on youtube right like they they are conceived first with their their action sequences and the director I, i'm given to understand at least a lot of the the directors have very little input into that side of it like it's it's done by a stunt team and it's done by uh cgi people and it's you know it's done by all of these artists who just don't happen to be uh, who just don't happen to be the director, um, you know, and and the the director functions like more like a more like a CEO of that particular movie, where the job is to like make sure everyone's marching in the same direction uh, and don't run out of money, which are the the two things that a CEO has to do. Um, <laughs> that like uh, you know, so so the fact that they don't that that you know, this this sort of director who definitely was putting putting a visual stamp on the film um different from the you know the look of a lot of the other uh marvel movies the same way that that i mean not not the same but like in uh in a the the uniqueness of it is similar to the uniqueness of taika waititi's movies when he's doing them um they just look uh, unlike the the things that have that have come before so the the um you know the whole uh the whole look was was very unique but the the action sequences looked like you know looked like any of those marvel third act sequences and yet i i couldn't help 
it couldn't help feeling kind of underpowered, I guess, Pete, like was my reaction to it. Mm. Um, I felt like I was on a repositioning cruise, you know, like this is not the main itinerary of the cruise line, but we have to move a ship from one place to another, right. you know, and that, so like we will offer a discount <laughs> on, yeah. you know, people who want to like do this Atlantic crossing or whatever, cause we're going from the Mediterranean, yeah. uh, we're going from the, the Mediterranean to the Caribbean. And so we're gonna, you know, um, you're going from like Brittany to Newfoundland or something. <laughs> we're going to make, uh, we're going to make uh, cruise lemons out of we're cruise, cruise lemonade out of cruise lemons. And, and, um, that's, you know, that, that is what I felt like I, um, I was watching uh, in the end, despite some, you know, despite some charming work from the actors and despite, you know, d- despite some stuff that that I enjoyed, it just felt like it it was very clear and like everything um, was there. Uh, the uh, do, do you remember the um, the what is it called? The the closet scene in Hamlet where he uh, he surprises his mother and he like shoves a picture of old Hamlet in her face and was like, this was your husband. Like, and look at what a, what a, uh, I, I think this is this scene. He's like, look at how, how manly he looks and, and everything, you know, contrived to tell you this was a man. And it, it, black, black widow felt like everything, uh, contrived to tell you this is a second tier entry in the franchise. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, um, and, and I say that not to, to knock the, the work of the good people who, who worked on it because it's not, not their fault or problem um for uh you know for doing it but i guess if this is if this is new um if this is new black widow you know she's funny i let you know she's got a a lot to recommend her i suppose and this is yeah i'm sorry pete Oh no no no! It's okay. It's okay. It's it's you're, everything you're saying is right. So I think to sum it up for, oh, God, say, for say the it, audience, say it again, Pete. Everything say you're saying is right. Oh my right? God! Hold on. I, okay, I'm gonna, I'll be right back. So I think to sum what I would sum it up, and what I think I was really intrigued by what Jordan was saying too, and I want to take that in another direction in just a moment as we talk about our other show tonight. Uh, that the thing with this movie also is that it never it never knows what kind of spy movie it's trying to be. And that isn't wouldn't necessarily be a problem if it weren't trying so hard to be specific other kinds of spy movies. So it's sort of like there's no real spy plot, right? It's it's just a it's really more of a of a cat and mouse game kind of movie where it's like I'm going to try I'm on the run and I have to do something while I'm on the run before somebody catches me, right? And and we have to fight and like so it's not really like an intrigue or anything like that. But but this but I think the heart of the movie is a different if you were to really want to try to dig into this movie and figure out what it's about and understand it, which is not necessarily worth it. Uh, you have to cut off so much of the rest of the movie, which is sort of reiterations and recapitulations of other kinds of spy movies, but not in a way that says anything about them. That's all that interesting. Right. So it's like the parts of it that are like the board identity, the parts of it that are like mission impossible, right? Like where there's car chases that end in people dying or not dying because they get badly injured when a car flips over. Right. Which is like not really a plot point in certain other spy movies. Right. Where it's like, Oh no, our, our lead actor is on a motorcycle and it's really dangerous is not like a main selling point of like, you know, Chow Yun fat movies as much. Um, but at any rate, maybe it is, I, that's a bad example. But the point being that like, 
I like the idea of a of a Black Widow movie that really digs into the idea of there being more than one Black Widow and it being an interesting question, right, about how reproducible these people are. So I, I will I will try to transition us to our next topic by making a suggestion of like an alternate Black Widow movie, which isn't the movie that we saw, because one of the things this movie's really lacked was a proper framing device. Right. Like, I, I mean, I don't know, Matt, did you feel that way about it? Yes, there's there yeah. is a lot of like the the number of flashbacks, and then also the fact that the the heist, the big heist at the end, uh, at the end of Space Jam, when when you know <laughs> when they go to dunk on the the you know Russian spy master, the the you know the guy who runs the Red Sparrow school, um, yes. the um, right, it's it's narrated in full Ocean's Eleven style. Where like whenever a reversal or a surprise happens, you you cut to you know like d- d- twelve hours earlier, right? As they're as they're planning the planning the surprise, and it it definitely like the kind of the anchoring effect of a of a frame story in in a narrative like that was would have been welcome here, I think, and yeah. might might have might have also like given it uh, made made it possible for it to have uh, more of the thematic unit that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Because the whole movie is sort of a flashback in the context of when we expect it to take place versus when it actually does oh, sure. in the continuity of the movies. But there's no flashback. There's the, the framing device is like a shot of fireflies in the woods. So Jordan, that if that gives you a sense for how this movie kind of works, right? It's that like they hired a very artsy... I mean, you know, she's a good director, right? The black, I, I should get her name on here because there's no reason not to mention her. Um, it's directed by Kate Shortland, who is, I believe, mostly the director of relatively small art films about women and captivity, right? Um, and, uh, oh, she did The Slap. She did an episode of The Slap. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and, and so the idea of having this sort of artsy shot of fireflies in the 80s and then fireflies in the 2020s, and it's sort of, is this an existential take on the idea that Black Widow's life was so short, but we don't really say that? The movie never acknowledges that the character's current, well, until after the credits, does the movie acknowledge that the character is currently in continuity dead? So, like, if there had been some sort of framing device to be like, you know, you know, I'm remembering, right? Have her lying on the ground, and like I'm remembering what brought me to this point, or something. Somebody oh, the whole something. movie, the whole movie takes place while she's falling off the cliff. Yeah, yeah, something like that's what I expected, right? Something, something that connects it to the, to the fact that it's all taking place in the past, and the and you know certain things about how it's going to shake out, but the reason you're doing it is to delve into her and understand her on her way out. But let's posit a different version, right? We just watched Loki which was, you know, I think pretty good, right? And uh, what if this is a movie about Black Widow going back and finding her family, right? Like she shows up and she's going, not her family, but she's going to, who she's trying to find is is the family she was embedded with, who are her, her fake American family, who are all themselves Russian spies, including her non-biological sister, Right. Um, I don't think they, they had the same biological parents, right? But they had they both had non-biological assigned deep cover spy parents who are David Harbour and Rachel Weiss, right? And and if it's this idea that she's dead, right? Scarlett, you know, Black Widow, 100% dead. Scarlett Johansson, Black Widow, 100% dead, shows up looking for her family. Who is she? 
is she the real Black Widow? How is she here? What's going on? Right. And if you could if you are already at the point in the story where we're talking about alternate timelines, alternate versions of people, I bring this up not because it would have made the whole story more coherent with what's going on in the MCU, but rather because the Black Widow movie is already about alternate versions of yourself. Like, like that's what it's it's about the the sort of the two roads diverging in, in the wood, right? And like this is what you become because of something that happens to you, and this is what some happens when somebody else becomes because the same thing happens to them. And are you the same person or not? Or are you different people? Uh and and, and what can you how can you connect with each other? And what does this have to do with the sort of shared bond that all women face because they all go through related sorts of BS, right? Of greater and lesser degree in the world. Um, which is kind of the point of the movie. But, you know, we now have a toolbox to talk about literal alternate versions of people who experience different things. Um, and I think the Black Widow movie, I would have liked it more if it delved more into that John Woo style, the killer style, you know, mirrors. Who am I? Who are you? Right. We could have two dragons fighting over a pearl. It would be great. Uh, but that, that, I mean, regardless. Anyway, uh, do you guys want to talk about Loki what, in, now? Instead and, like, of two pearls fighting over a dragon? There you go. <laughs> that's, uh, um, but that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, uh, I like, look, I'll, ca- I'll cut to the chase with Loki. I ended up feeling like, uh, Loki ended up being a teaser for the second better season of Loki that I ended up wishing <laughs> I was watching instead. And like for all, you know, the, you, you could watch Tom- for the Sopranos, right? Yes. <laughs> you yeah. can watch Tom Hiddleston read a phone book. Like that guy's, you know, that guy's got charisma to burn, but, um, yeah, but I do wonder, I don't know, like, uh, like I do wonder if there was a way to like, di- didn't, didn't some of them feel slower kind of placeholder-y to you? Like, uh, the well, I nearly called it the bottle episode on the planet that was about to be destroyed. But the point of a bottle episode is that you use existing sets and save money, and nothing about that particular <laughs> one seemed like it was done on a done on a budget. The the like the blockbuster quality action movie that they shot forty minute action movie that they shot on the planet that was about to blow up in in Loki, but that didn't like. That had a lot of, you know, hijinks, a lot of, you know, highly kinetic, uh, stunts and, and explosions and stuff, but didn't, I don't know, didn't seem to, um, move the characters forward in any way that was specific to who they were in any way that sort of like matched the themes and kind of made the movie, made the, made the TV show feel like it was, it was all of a piece rather than like, rather than the way that like, Hey, any, any adventures and hijinks are going to bond any set of, of, you know, super buddies. Um, But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to, I may be, out on you're pooping a, too early, Matt. You're pooping before we even got started. I'm, that's yeah. Well, yeah, it's a. It's, you got to chew your roughage before you start pooping. Man. I'm the I'm the family in the Phantom of Liberty. Let me let me step into the bathroom and have a have a turkey leg. Um, so you guys, I, mean, I, I, I see what you're saying, and I think you're right. But like, so there are a few things I want to say about Loki. First of all, if uh, there's a sense in which Black Widow felt like this was definitely a B side. Uh, Loki very clearly feels like it's an A side, right? Yeah. Uh, like they they spent a lot of money on it. In many ways, it feels like this is the new direction for the whole MCU. Not least, and I mean, this is spoiler alert stuff, I guess. But you know, um, that, you that it introduces spoilers, yeah. Yeah. it introduces the main 
villain for the whole next phase of the cinematic stuff, right? Or or maybe the main villains, but we'll get to that. Um, and yet, you're right. Like, it, it seemed at, at the same time, like, it moved too fast and too slow. Like, there are these episodes that seem self-contained and, like, they're not really moving the football. And yet... Because there's only six episodes and a lot of them are built around action rather than character stuff or introducing like new one-off characters who as as awesome as classic Loki and Crocodile Loki were, they didn't tell us anything about the characters that we really were focusing on, right? Uh, if it had been a serialized TV show that ran for like five or six seasons and you could have really gotten to understand who – who our Loki, I'll, I'll just call him, and who Sylvie are as people in the way that really rich and nuanced characters can emerge out of multiple seasons of TV, then I feel like the final confrontation where they like, okay, now they have to fight each other, now they want these different things, like that would have landed much, much better potentially than it than it possibly could coming after the abbreviated and kind of overtly cinematic in the big blockbuster like action movie sense of cinematic season that we ended up getting so like i i i like loki i thought it was good i enjoyed it but i i think i see the weakness that you're pointing to and it, it seems to come from like it wanting to be a big event Marvel movie as well as a TV show and not managing to find a way to do both of those things satisfactorily. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I would say I definitely, it definitely felt like it was half a season. It, it definitely felt mm -hmm. like we got to the end and it was like, okay, there's another half of a season that's going to show up at some point and it's going to tell the rest of the story to, to get to the nuts and bolts of it. Loki and Sylvie, right? Loki, I'm like, I'm like, my hand, my face is literally on my hand. Um, I had, I had problems throughout watching the show with the characterization of Sylvie. Uh, and, and my problem, I think it was a problem of efficiency and time in retrospect, which is that there was, we already know Loki. And so you, you can tell the story of Loki in this TV show. Uh, you have a lot of the work already done for you in terms of setting up who he is why you care about him. It's confusing. You have to reconcile a bunch of it and change stuff. And as you've said, like, yeah, classic Loki, alligator Loki, all these new characters that get introduced, you're not really supposed to care about the inner life of alligator Loki. Like part of why it works to the extent that he does is that you sort of instantly recognize what's going on. It's very simple. It's iconic. It's kind of a joke. Right. And, and you get it because it's in the context of the Loki you already know. And, and you would think that as an alternate version of Loki, Sylvie would have, and like I talked about before, that sort of Goku-Vegeta difference, right? That there would be something that is different about Sylvie that that is very clear in terms of how it affected who she is, and that, and that otherwise she's similar to Loki. And I think that my big issue with the characterization of Sylvie is she doesn't seem similar to Loki at all. And I guess I want to raise that to the committee, right? Like Sylvie is her own character who seems to have a pretty three-dimensional relationship with her past, with authority, who has no relationship with Thor, which is also strange, right? Like, like when I think about the sort of touchstone relationships that that I would use 
as as the sort of benchmark for how is Loki behave in a given situation. It's like, well, he has this playful relationship with Thor where he's always kind of jokingly trying to get get over on Thor, except he's really trying to get over on Thor. Like he's actually trying to kill him or turn him into a frog or whatever. But Thor is so impervious that it all becomes a joke. Right. Or that he has this sort of maniacal desire uh, to be seen that comes from his brother being so beloved by everybody. But Sylvie has no relationship with Thor, and that's not the thing that's different about her, right? It's like she also has no relationship with – she has no relationship with any of the Asgardians because she was taken away from them at a young age. But that's like most of Loki's backstory. It's not just one thing, right? It's not just that she's a Loki who hates authority more than wants to play with it. It's like she has a totally different backstory, and even that backstory, it doesn't really tell you who she is because she doesn't act like she was raised in the TVA either. Right? Supposedly, she's been in the TVA, right, since she was like a teenager or she was on the run for a long time. It's I, She's a good – she's an interesting character. I want to see what she's going to do next. But for the purpose of this show, she didn't feel to me like an alternate Loki, which meant that there wasn't enough time to really get to know her or figure out what was going on, especially in that third episode, which is really important and also comes up really short in doing, I think, what it's trying to accomplish, which is to yeah. like, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's in a way, it's a very interesting question because Loki's path to villainy, as it sort of plays out in the Thor franchise and then in the various other movies that he's in, is that like he is supposed to be just another Asgardian, but he's not, right? And like he he gradually learns that he's different, that he's an outsider, that he's not related, and he begins to feel cheated and it sort of like poisons him. It's um, you know, I would imagine that people who who are adopted or who have adopted children or other adopted members of their family might find this uh this whole characterization and trope a little bit noxious, but it works dramatically, right? That he is like he can never quite be part of that. And then he decides that he needs to destroy it or to take it over. And like, it's not that he wants to rule Asgard because that would be nice. He wants to rule Asgard because that is what Thor is supposed to get. And he wants to take it instead, right? All of that stuff, right? His path to villainy then is caught up in his weird relationship with his adoptive family. And it's an arc where like as a child, everything's fine. And then when he grows up, it becomes uh, toxic. What would happen if you removed him from that situation when he was a child, right? And I don't think that the the answer that they come up with, like the character of Sylvie, like that's not really the the interesting or believable version of what would happen like would you end up with somebody who is actually a lot more like thor you know mm. uh would you end up with a heroic version of loki like and, and that's kind of a, a creepy message that like the, the way to morally redeem loki is to traumatize him as a child but it makes a certain kind of sense right um and like that, that that's not really what's going on right we don't get to see her as loki but what if we get to see her basically as like someone who has been traumatized by this authoritarian organization and then becomes a like a violent anarchist trying to overthrow it which makes perfect sense you know it's a, a perfectly legitimate character arc but you're right she doesn't feel like loki except that uh her face kind of looks like tom hiddleston's and she has the outfit that is sort of a a version of the the loki outfit and that is a real problem right maybe there's a version that they could have done that would have fixed it uh 
but it, it takes away all of the kind of creepy aspects of them, like, you know, kissing each other. If, if he, if she was very recognizably him or sort of his sister and that she's her brother is his brother, that would have felt a lot weirder than it actually ended up feeling. I think. I, I would agree with you there. Yeah. That, Cause at the end, they don't even really feel like alternate versions of each other when they kiss, they just sort of feel like two, like 40 year old people <laughs> who are lonely <laughs> and are making out in a time of extreme stress. Right. Like yeah. it's, it's hey, uh, shut, shut up. It's been a hard, <laughs> it's been a hard year and a half. Has yeah. been for locus. I know Matt. Where do you land on this whole? Because I feel like Sylvie is the heart of the show, and I think it's really important that Sylvie. And I don't think that that's what they were going for. <laughs> All right, I don't know. It's like Tom Hiddleston's Loki. You would think he would be the heart of the show in the way that Wanda is the heart of WandaVision, except I think that Sylvie is really the heart of the show. Well, because she's the one who carries out the guestess, right? The sort of big dramatic gesture that informs everything that happens. It's not him. <laughs> It's her, the right? Is, sure. Yeah. It's it's also she's she's the one who who sort of wants a thing the most, right? Like who's mm-hmm. who's trying to change the change the status quo um, the most, like in in I mean, the most radical way. To be totally clear, the main character of the show is Owen Wilson's desire to ride a jet ski. But out yes. of the two of them, yes, <laughs> Sylvia is clearly the heart of it. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, Chekhov's jet ski was not uh, honored really in this particular. Uh, I thought they'd scene. at least have a post-credit scene. I was so disappointed. <laughs> They're going to have to do it in the season two. They're going to be reading all about it. And like everything, every single commentary on this show mentions the fact that it was disappointing that there wasn't a jet ski at the end of the show. Um, do you think they wanted to do it and they couldn't do it because of COVID? Like, do you think that's why? Because like, because what, like riding, filming Owen Wilson by himself in the middle of a <laughs> lake would have posed too much of a problem for, you know, health and safety. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Though there's the only jet ski they needed to do period appropriate 3D jet skis and they just didn't get it rendered in time. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, so there are two I mean, there are two things and I think you have to, to account for them separately that that go into Sylvie. One is that she's she's female Loki and that is like being alligator Loki, right? Like there's there's just a a, a difference there that is going to lead to a different trajectory because there's going to be a different relationship with the world around you based on that, just that single characteristic. And then right. She's, she's yanked out of, uh, she's yanked out of, um, of Asgard, the, you know, as a child. And so her, her, this sort of etiology of her personality is like, is completely different. And they're, they're, they're separate things, right? So like, you know, what is it? Yeah. What, what, what is it? What is just the alligator Loki version of version of Sylvie that grew up in Asgard? Right. What is the, and then what, what is the effect of the kind of the subsequent, the subsequent yoink um, that, you know, that happened for her. And yeah, it is, it is interesting that like she doesn't, you know the idea the idea of the the mischievousness um you know it's it's a way it's sort of a way of us of asserting himself right like it's a way of kind of subverting all the like the the triumphal you know bombastic broish backslapping 
uh, that Thor represents like that line from the first Thor, I think the first Thor movie where it's like, where were you guys? It's like, ah, we drank, we thought we fought, we, we made our ancestors proud. Right. Like, and, and, you know, Loki's like, come on. Um, the, the, so does the, does the, do the things that we, um, associate with, uh, with Loki kind of come, you know, come about or not come about in a different way when you don't put him in the bro culture of Asgard, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's number one. Like what, what is the resistance? What, what is the reaction against the bureau, the bureaucracy? Like, you know, what is the reaction against the, you know, the super officious, you know, clock punchers and paperwork filler outers of the, of the TVA? Like, I, I feel like that leads you to, to, uh, to a, to a different personality. And then like, if you're talking about like, you know, what the, the, the mischievous, the kind of like subversive qualities, and you put that in a, in a woman. Well, like when those things are sort of coded female, there's a whole other kind of whole other realm of story, storytelling that you enter there with like women trickster characters. And it just, this was not, um, this was not one to sort of go there. I mean, like her and, and what was her superpower, right? It was like empathizing real hard, you know, <laughs> like to, to the point where she got into your, where she got into your memories and could like experience them along with you could kind of like enter your, enter your memories and, and live in your head with you. It wasn't necessarily tricksy, right? Like she wasn't, she wasn't, uh, um, fooling anybody about what her her aims were like they were unknown but they were they were straightforward um so yeah it, but but yes absolutely i think she was the the heart of the show but you couldn't call it sylvie right like you had to call it loki because that's the one with the um that's the one with the brand recognition yeah uh, yeah well so okay so if i could jump to the end for a moment i want to i want to because we talked a little bit the show raises the question many times, what is a Loki, right? That's what they want to talk about. And it's one of the many things they want to talk about, but that's the big thing. What makes a Loki a Loki? And we've discussed some of the ways in which Sylvie wanders so far afield and the various things that are different about her that she doesn't necessarily register at a Loki. But in a, in a, in a more of an in-universe sense, one thing I'm interested in that I haven't really seen discussed in a lot of the reaction videos and, and other sort of commentary on the show and I'm sure there's somebody out here who's talked about it. I haven't come across it. So the idea is that a, the Immortus, right? So like Immortus, a version, an alternate, a variant of Kang, the Conqueror, right? A variant mm. of this great descendant of Reed Richards, right? Who in the comics goes by Immortus, who is this particular uh, member of this kind of Rick Rick and Morty-esque cadre of infinite geniuses, right? Um, although Rick and Morty are more Kang-esque. It's the other way around. Um, he's part of this cadre of infinite geniuses in this particular story. He establishes primacy over them and is able to eliminate all the others by establishing a fascistic grip on the entire you know, galactic into you know, universal timeline. The plan at the end is to put Loki in charge of the universe. And, and I can't help but think like, does nobody else think that that's a strange plan? Right. Like, 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 as in, is that the kind of thing that you would do if you were literally trying to tank the whole thing? 
right? If, if, if what you really wanted to do was like generate a ton of chaos, would the idea be, okay, we'll just make Loki in charge of everything, right? Um, or I guess, I guess, I guess there's a lot of ways I can ask this question, but I'll boil it down to a, to a one way or the other to see which way you guys are leaning. Is this a situation where Kang has all of the universe ordered and Loki and the Lokis writ large enter the are in this universe as this sort of agent of chaos and they end up through their propensity for chaos to disrupt the order? Or is this an idea that the universe is is being driven by this villain towards a desired state of chaos and Loki is being kind of co-opted and positioned to do this. Um, I mean, I guess I'm asking which came first, you know, the Loki or the egg, right? Like did like this is, is, is Loki supposed to show up at the Citadel at the end of time uh, because he's Loki or because she's Loki or are they supposed to show up there because that's how the Citadel is set up and that's what they expect to have happen. Yeah, I mean, I think the show was reasonably clear about what what it says the answer is, but it's not a really good answer, which leads to the question that you're asking. Right. So they, uh, he, he says that he's very tired and very old and doesn't want to be in charge of it anymore. So therefore, he looked for someone who could come and take that away from him. And the only the only possible person who would like get through. Uh, the the various hurdles was this combination of Loki and Sylvie. So that's what he said. It's like he he just wanted to give up power to somebody, and the only person that it turned out to be practically possible to do that for was Loki and Sylvie. And then either Sylvie wins and she kills him, in which case, as he says, like he reincarnates and comes back and does it again, but now he's not old and tired anymore, I guess. Or Loki wins and Loki like takes over all of the administrative duties while he continues to just sort of chill in the citadel i guess so like i say it's not it's not really good because the answer that they give is like well why do you want to step down i just do why is it us it just has to be you like what's gonna happen uh like and, and then like her her killing him makes a certain amount of sense but like if Loki had won, like what actually happens there? Well, we don't need to worry about that because that's not the ending that we wrote, right? So, like, it's not real great. I do think it's a really interesting possible question. So, I, I turn it back over to you then, right? Like, what, which, which of those in inner version where the show is slightly better written? Which answer do you uh, do you? Which of your two options do you kind of favor? I guess I, I saw those two. The third one that comes to mind, which is I think the one that, that I favor the most, is this this additional weird detail, which is at the end of time, all the alternate realities that have been created are all being destroyed, right, in this sort of mulcher, this kind of cloud mulcher that eats everything. The only people we come across who are able to survive and form a society are alternate versions specifically of Loki, right? Like, like, yes, you know, Mobius is able to drive around for a little while in a car, but there's no like infinite number of Mobiuses we meet who've all been sent there. Right. Mo you get the sense that Mobius's days are numbered uh, if he if he doesn't get out of there. But for some reason, Loki is able to survive at this time at the end of time. Yeah. To the yeah. extent that Mobius is there, it's probably because he's like infected by Loki energy. Right. Yeah. 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 And so is the idea that Loki is this ultimate survivor. And as such, um, 
wow. And it's just sort of like, well, you're you're it has to be you because you're the only other person here it takes on a different resonance. If it's like every other person alive dies except for you. Hmm. And, and but like but you did die. Right. That And that's sort of the one defining fact about our Loki or I guess not our Loki, but the Loki from the MCU that isn't this Loki. Right. Is that Thanos is inevitable and Thanos kills him. Um, I, I like it better, I think, if Kang did it on purpose. I think I like it better if Kang is like, you know, what would be awesome is just building up the whole universe. Right. Putting it all in a hyper organized state, you know, fixing this whole thing and then just giving it to the God of mischief and watching what happens. Because like I because I do this an infinite number of times. And I mean, I don't know. One way to look at Kang is as a as as a sort of tourist. Right. As as a like uh, he was bored <laughs> in the 31st century or whenever he was alive. And so he goes back in time out of like a sort of like he's a big game hunter. Like he's he's Richard Branson. Right. Like he's the rebel, the rebel conqueror <laughs> where it's like I have access to all this technology. What am I supposed to do with it other than conquer every version of every moment in all of history all the time over and over again? I've been I mean, to space. Space tourism yeah. is so is so last <laughs> millennium, you know? Yeah, it's time tourism, man. I mean, I don't know. I'm not as familiar with Kang that I maybe I'm painting him a little more, more like booster gold than I should. Perhaps I mean, he's more ominous than that. Time but, tourism, time tourism is interesting, right? Like cuz like a sound of thunder is about it's about time tourism and big game hunting, right? Because the people in in that Ray Bradbury short story about like changing things in the past and its effect on the on the future um, are there to like shoot dinosaurs, but they only shoot the dinosaurs that are about to die. <laughs> kind of similar in in the way that the uh, that Sylvie hides out. Not specifically relevant, but you 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 reminded me of it. But that I mean, yeah, it it is. It is it is interesting though because like Pete, that's a long con, you know. Yeah, like the, a long <laughs> the the whole duration of the existence of everything uh, con in you know in order to do that, and you think there would be just more more available sources of amusement. That's true. Like, like when you know, they played Red Dead Redemption Four. Right. <laughs> you know, an, an interesting way for it to work would be so. Like, what if, um, basically, what Kang likes is the process of subjugating the universe into this totalitarian, regimented timeline. But once he's done that, like being in charge of it is not much fun. So he wants to turn it over to Loki so that Loki can make it collapse into chaos. At which point Kang will come back and, you know, stomp it into order again. And like this, this cycle has played out 12, 15, 2000 times already by the time it, like our Loki gets there. And he's like, no, this is the point at which you kill me and the timeline explodes into chaos. And then Loki sort of has to decide, like, do I do that? He seems to want me to do that, but I don't really see what the heck else I'm going to do. I feel like that's maybe slightly more interesting than the version of the show that we got. Yeah. What, what, as, as we kind of are, are, you know, rounding the final bend into the end, what, what am I supposed to make of the fact that we go back to the TVA and in the alternate reality that was created by what transpired in the Citadel, there's now a, a statue of Kang there in the, in the big hall of the TVA. Like what, what was I, supposed to take away from that like things are different now and it's ominous or uh was there something more specific i mean i i have something but jordan you want to go first no no please so i think i think for me the effect was as such 
there is always a there is almost always a third timeline in time travel movies, which is the timeline of the movie, right? And there's this notion, there's this notion in a lot of time travel movies that you have to do something before something else, right? Like the protagonists who are traveling in time need to accomplish something, and there's some sort of urgency to it. And when they they do the thing, right, it changes everything or whatever. It's back to the future model of time travel, whatever it is. We're not talking about those sort of like locked, closed loops kind of things, but there's this idea that like the characters do something. And then like and then they travel back in time and then it gets changed. Right. And and then there's a timeline of the experience of the story. I think that the big takeaway from that moment for me is Kang has already traveled back in time many, many, many times to many, many, many places and done a whole bunch of stuff before we as the audience are even introduced to him again. Right. This is not an alternate reality that changes back to the future style because Kang is killed in, you know, Immortus is killed in the Citadel. This is like another Kang left, you know, his timeline that branched off, traveled back in time, you know, fought a bunch of other Kangs, made friends with them, made enemies with them, figured out what the TVA was, founded it. Right. And or co-opted it or took it over because he discovered it from somebody else. Like there's this idea that you've just missed a whole bunch of stuff. I think that's what's supposed to be scary about it is like anything is up for grabs. Sure. But that, that also like Owen Wilson doesn't, I mean, maybe this Owen Wilson doesn't like jet skis. Maybe this Owen Wilson is all about those like four wheel ATVs, you know, that like, uh, cause they don't recognize, you know, that would be the darkest timeline. I mean, three wheelers would be the darkest timeline because it's dangerous. I guess actually, isn't there, isn't there a painting in the Royal Tannenbaums or something that's about like, people in masks on on four-wheel ATVs on quad ATVs I don't know um the uh but that like yeah he he didn't know I don't know it, to me there's a little bit of like yeah time travel movies go go in a couple different ways there's like a path dependent uh aspect the way that like the maps of choose your own adventure novels um mean that certain decisions preclude certain endings. And I guess like Loki kind of skidding sideways onto this, uh, whatever this timeline, whatever this quantum reality or this multiverse universe is like, uh, I didn't totally make sense to me other than like, Oh, it's, it's ominous. And I guess, yeah, Pete, what, what you said of like, it's ominous and I don't understand everything that's going on. You know. I, I, yeah, the, the, the scene operates because the whole show has this idea of the red line, which I mean, we aren't even talking about the biggest problem with the show, in my opinion, which is this, the whole buildup to Sylvie setting off the charges that cause a whole bunch of branching realities that all appear to be about to cross the, the red line just as the episode ends. And it's just never talked about or acknowledged again. Right. Right. Like that, that, that for me, was just like, that just seemed unprofessional. So, but a little bit, a little bit, it was like, well, gosh, guys, that was a fire drill, but, uh, we squelched all of those alternate realities, didn't we? (laughs) Yeah. And it's like the, there's this idea that's set up in the TVA that there's an amount of time that passes in the TVA before these accidents become irreversible. And the scene operates in your, like, you're in that moment and, and you're supposed to think that, that uh, Mobius is going to come up with something that can fix it. And it turns out that not only can he not do it, but it's already far too late. Like he's not even Mobius anymore. Right. right? Like, um, but then I guess this didn't really hew that much to the convention and all that other stuff. So, um, 
the way that I read that final scene was very similar, but a little bit different, mm-hmm. which is that like the the metaphysics of time in Loki up until the final episode is that there's supposed to be only one timeline and that like it can branch, but something bad happens when it branches. So they stop it from branching. Um, And if you travel forward and backward in time, you're still in the same timeline. Uh, There were parts of that that didn't actually make sense, but like that that's sort of the the thing that they tell you over and over again. Once Mobius gets killed though, like now we are in a completely different metaphysics. Once Kang gets killed? Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. once, once Kang gets killed. Um, there's like – now there is no one timeline. So when uh, Loki wakes up in there um, – and this, this again, like there's a little bit of a continuity hole because he gets kicked through the portal before Kang gets killed. It's only in, in like screen time that he wakes up after Kang's death. But anyway, he gets kicked through the portal. He's no longer on the central timeline because there is no longer the central timeline. So in this version of time, the TVA exists – but rather than it being run by the timekeepers, whoever they are, it's run by, you know, run by Kang. And it's not like uh, this is because the Kang that we saw get killed had some particular plan that he like went back and set up before. But just like, you know, now it's infinite monkeys, infinite typewriters. There's some version of reality where Kang created the TVA in his own image like that. That's the one that Loki randomly got dropped into. And this version of Mobius has never seen him before. Right, right. So so that's because supposedly the TVA is like outside of time, but we don't know that. The rules are totally different at this point. Yeah. So we don't and know. And it's kind of like, yeah. you know, once you go into the multiverse situation, like, yes, they're outside of any particular time, but there's lots of outsides of time. So like just like there's infinite timelines, there's infinite TVAs. And the Doctor Strange movie, based purely on its title, is going to try to tidy this up somehow. Yeah. Do you think we'll get to a place where they like boil it down to a more reasonable kind of frame or number like like there won't be infinite universes that we have to deal with there'll be like a dozen or something or um i don't know i'm curious how they how they make this more manageable because it seems like it's going to become a kind of a pro i mean maybe maybe they'll just ignore it i don't know yeah. Um, Maybe they'll have like a an opening crawl where sort of uh, like the like the Jet Li movie The One will will end <laughs> up with like I don't know like seven versions of Kang maybe just two who knows although like what I what I've heard and this is based on like you know reading stuff on Twitter so this may be this is not exactly a scoop but apparently like the plan is to have that actor show up in a whole bunch of the next Marvel movies as the main villain of the movie but it's not the same guy yeah like it's a different version of kang in every movie just played by the same actor and they'll be all different different people with different goals which is a absolutely bizarre and uh i, I think kind of great strange direction to take your giant media brand into oh uh, yeah I, you know i'm always in favor of movies becoming more like the one by Jet Li, and it is interesting to hear about without the governing hand of the tva I mean, it's just a question of, you know, they're going to let the bodies hit the floor, let the bodies hit the floor. Right. When all the all the people (laughs) that movie, the the bodies never never hit the floor because they evaporated into smoke. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. What they did is they cut their lives into pieces and it was their last resort. Um, But uh, and then they fed them to the smoke monster. Um, But, yeah, it's I can't believe they never actually published the soundtrack to that movie. 
It's like one of the best movie soundtracks of all time, and it isn't even a thing that exists. Um, it's so strange. By greatest is loose definition of greatest. Somewhere there's an alternate version. So, okay, for those of you who haven't seen Jet Li's The One, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a close, similar close sort of concept. This, yeah. Okay, so Jet Li's The One. The concept behind Jet Li's The One, right, is sort of the, we're, what we're doing with Loki is we are undoing Jet Li's The One, right? We're walking it backwards, right? The, the notion is that uh, everybody exists in an infinite number of versions of themselves, uh, or not infinite, but like numerous over the course of many different universes. But there is a finite amount of power that is quantified in your ability to jump kick other people that is spread across all the versions of yourself in all realities that exist. And so it's about a uh, reality and time jumping uh, potentate who decides to defeat himself many, many times in Kung Fu battles in order to achieve ultimate transdimensional Kung Fu mastery. And it is it has like early incorporation of CGI in the action sequences. And for some reason has all this new metal music in it, right? Like, which is, which is amazing. It's got Jason Statham. It's got Delroy Lindo, uh, Carla Gugino. It's all over the place. But um, what I'm saying is that like, if at the end of the interdimensional intertime war, Kang, you know, Immortus Kang, he who remains Kang, is the Kang who is sort of last. Uh, he doesn't seem to have really become the most powerful. Um, I mean, I guess that just means that the Jet Li movie takes place in a different reality, right, with different different rules. Yeah, like uh, there's nothing metaphysical about it. He's powerful because he he created this monster that let him kill all the the other the other Kangs, but he didn't thereby acquire their strength like in Highlander. Which right, seems like a mistake, honestly. Finally, people have seen Highlander, and we can talk about it. There we go. Now I'm satisfied. <laughs> so, Excellent. Let's also let's not let's not let the let the podcast go without saying that Jonathan Majors. The actor who plays, you know, uh, him that remains, uh, is great. <laughs> like, and it's just so, it's just so riveting. The whole, you know, thirty minutes of television, or however, however uh, long he's he's on screen. For sure. Like, I'm I'm happy to see that guy play villains in Marvel movies for as long as he cares to do it. Yeah, and and he definitely has something that has been a characteristic of a lot of the successful Marvel movies, and that it like it looks fun in some respect, you know. Mm. Um, and that that was that was true a lot. Like uh, he he brings that sort of that sort of Robert Downey Jr. energy a little bit of that, like you know, oh, this is just a gas for me, <laughs> and and uh, that's uh, sort of fun to fun to watch. Yeah. I look forward to the version of Black Widow where he plays the younger Black Widow and just talks about his hysterectomy. <laughs> Make, makes it wacky. Make it a wacky. By the way, Jordan, Black Widow includes a wacky, played for laughs, graphic description of a hysterectomy. So, um, spoiler alert. Wow. <laughs> Loki, Loki does too, but it's in it's in the deleted scenes. Yeah, hyster- <laughs> hysterectomy and also dual oophorectomy. I yes, believe is the yes. Name of there's that all procedure. sorts of activities that are happening. Exactly. It's very extreme. They, yeah, exactly. Um, well, they, 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 you know, take out everything and <laughs> fill those girls with spider venom and mind control. <laughs> I'm glad that I chose to watch the Marvel property that had an alligator in a funny hat. <laughs> 
uh, I've heard David Harbour called worse, but uh, <laughs> and the and and also the property that had the glorious Richard E. Grant. Um, oh yeah, doing. Oh know, my goodness, yeah. A, he was good. Uh, Gugu Mbatha Raw was fantastic in this. I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, there are lots of good acting in Loki all over the place. Yeah, yeah good people. Sure. All along. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Pete, and thank you, Jordan, for uh, talking. This has been, uh, you know, what two fifths Black Widow, three fifths Loki. You're you're caught up with Phase. What are we on? Eighty seven of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No, this is. I think we're kicking off Phase Four, the Post Infinity Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so this is some service journalism that we're very happy to bring to you. We'll be back next week with more. Overthinking a podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. There's an alternate reality where we get that right every time. It's not as There's an alternate reality wherein the character we decide to talk about from Independence Day all the time isn't like Harvey Firestein, but is like what, like uh, the 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 Adam the Adam Baldwin character, the Brett Spiner character. <laughs> oh yeah, the Brett Spiner character. Always like uh, they don't let us out much. <laughs> oh, very. Oh yes, it's been very very Ooh. exciting here. Oh, the gizmos have been turning on. Yes, oh, it's oh, very exciting. So so exciting. <laughs> Or just like some random, random extra who says, like, right this way, Mr. President. Right this way, Mr. President. Right, right this way, way, Mr. President. Right this way, right this Mr. Way. President. Right this way, Mr. No, President. No, right this way. Right this way, Mr. President. Right this way, Mr. President. Right this way, Mrs. President. Infinite realities. Infinite possibilities. <laughs>